0: Let me give you just a quick go ahead, Ash give you a quick announcement, one that I wanted to hit here if you just open up to the fourth page in your worship flyer there's a announcement called Turn it up and it it's basically coming from the children's ministry uh, department Pastor Shane Paulson and his wife Megan are putting this on uh, but it's ultimately going to be a team effort with not only the staff but a number of volunteers in this church. It's going to be a four-week Thursday night program from July 11th to August 1st. And what I want to encourage you to do is Shane, is, Shane and Megan are working really hard at this. We've been talking pretty extensively the last year and a half about working hard to do our best at making disciples, to do the, you know, that two-word vision statement that Jesus gave us, go and make Disciples. And we've been looking at all of our programming, doing some intensive reviews as a staff with each other and trying to understand how we can be effective here. And uh, life groups uh, are really a part of that, central piece of that. And so this program here coming up on Thursday nights that's going to be put on by the children is really for the whole church. And we're asking that all of the generations would come together and we would work together toward growing in our discipleship. And the theme of that is going to be surrounding God's big story. I don't even know exactly what it's going to look like. I don't know that Shane and Megan fully know exactly what it's going to look like. We're trying to craft that now. But it is true that God has a story. God started that story when he said, let there be light. That story has been moving forward. And we're in that story. If you're a child of God, you're in the story of God there. He's got plans for you in that story. And so what this event, this discipleship event is going to be oriented toward is us coming together, adults and young people and children, and number one, finding our place in God's story. Number two, understanding what that place is, and then also how to come alongside of other people who have not yet gotten into God's story through salvation and knowing how to share with them how they can engage in the great story that God is carrying out and be a part of it, part of it for eternity. So I encourage you to put that on your calendar and be a part of that if you can. Romans chapter 8. Please open in Romans chapter 8. What we're going to do today is we are going to complete the second half of Romans chapter 8, verse 17. We covered the first half of that verse last week. And what has been taking place here, very quickly what's been taking place is that in this great chapter, in this greatest of letters, Paul has been driving a central truth home. He opened up chapter 8, verse 1, stating the truth, and all the way down through the next 38, 39 verses, he is, in a a multifaceted way, he is looking at that truth from a number of angles to solidify it, to validate it, to prove its veracity. And the truth is this, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That it is absolutely impossible... For there to be any condemnation for those who are in Christ, because what Christ has done is Christ has, excuse me, Christ has taken the condemnation on himself. In the great act of redemption, in his sacrifice, he received into himself the condemnation for sins and Paid it in full so that if you have accepted Christ, if you're in Christ, there is no way that you can be condemned. That you can be condemned now or that you can be condemned ever. That is the great propositional truth that is hit throughout Romans chapter 8. And what he does in verses 14 to 17 is he comes at that truth in a subunit And starts talking about adoption. And what we have seen in the last three weeks from verses 14, 15, and 16 in the first half of 17 is that Paul has been unpacking this doctrine of adoption. Incredible, incredible truth that is included in the doctrine of adoption. Adoption being something that the Father does, a choice that the Father makes absolutely, completely on His own to adopt us. Unmerited, undeserving, completely by His will and His grace and in love, He chooses us and then to make that a reality in his call he regenerates us he wakes us up in from a state of being dead in sin and enemies of the cross and in opposition and rebellion he wakes us up and brings us to new life so we can see and hear and sense and understand the truth gives us the faith to believe and not only that, but it says in Scripture that he who began a good work carries it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Here's the, here's the truth, folks. If you're in, you're in. There is no condemnation. And a part of the reality of that is you've been fully adopted in a transaction that is eternal. Fully adopted. And so Paul has been enumerating on the incredible blessings of adoption. But then he does something in the concluding statement of this short subsection on adoption where it looks like he just grinds the gear of Scripture and completely takes a radical departure from where he has been going. Let's just read verse 17 in its entirety, and then we'll jump in and look closely at the second half of the verse. So he opens up, I'm reading from the ESV, he opens up in the middle of this thought here and he writes, and if children, in other words, if you truly are a child of God, a son or a daughter of God, then here's the reality. Then you're an heir, an heir of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And then here comes what looks like a derailment or a detour, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So here's a question, legitimate question. If what we have been looking at in the 8th chapter of Romans is truly one great truth, no condemnation, not now, not ever, If that is clearly the truth that Paul is delineating in this chapter and reinforcing it over and over again in a variety of ways, why, when he comes to the end of a treatment on adoption, does he all of a sudden throw in what appears clearly on the surface to be a condition, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with Him? How does that fit? Not only how does it fit here with this treatment on adoption, but why in the world, if he's trying to drive home the security of the believer in Romans chapter 8, is he saying, well, that's true. You're, you get this inheritance. All yours in Christ, provided that you do this. Let me say that even stronger hopefully clearer. Let's say you're a mature believer, been a Christian for a while. You are talking to someone that's relatively young in the faith, and they are struggling. They're getting hit with some hard times, and they are struggling, and they're questioning, why is this happening? Where is God in this? Why is He allowing this to happen to me? Or maybe I'm not even really saved. I didn't think this was a part what would you do, rhetorical question here, what would you do to say to them, to come alongside of them, and to reinforce their faith? How would you try to build them up in their faith so that the doubts of the enemy were defeated? You're convinced they're a believer. You are there on their conversion. You have known them. You know they're sincere in heart. It seemed to be like a radical transformation. What would you say to them? in order to defeat doubt and establish them in the truth. Would you do this? Would you take that opportunity to say to them, suffering proves you're a child of God? Doesn't that seem like, I mean, just in a human perspective, in the midst of all of these blessings, boom, here's what happens to you. you. You get the inheritance of God. You're a joint heir with Christ. All that's Christ is yours if you suffer. It doesn't seem like counterproductive to the subject? So here's what I want to do. I, I stated that because it's important. It's obvious that it looks like that. Uh, On the surface level, now there's various translations here. The word is provided in the ESV. I think the NIV is, if indeed we do this. I think the New Living Translation words that a little differently. But all of them seem to be stating on a surface look this condition the condition of something in the future in order to guarantee the inheritance. Like, this in the future has to happen, and if that happens, then you're in. So, one statement, and then I'll try to unpack this from the Greek and help you understand what I believe is undeniable that Paul is saying here. And hopefully by the end of this sermon, you're going to see that as well. What we must do when we face what appears to be on the surface, questions, things that don't make sense, we can never do this. It's critical. This is the critical truth of, of biblical hermeneutics or biblical interpretation is that You should not ever take a text and use it to fly in the face of the clear teaching of the rest of Scripture. That's a misuse. See, the problem is not with the text. You must be misunderstanding something. I mean, if this is the inerrant Word of God, He's not confused, right? He's not confused. So, you just need to get an understanding of what it is saying and how it actually agrees with and complements the pervasive teaching of Scripture throughout. And the pervasive teaching of Scripture throughout is this. You don't do anything to get saved. God does it all. You don't do anything to merit yourself to God He does it all. You you don't do anything to pull yourself up and add to, you don't add one-tenth of one-hundredth of one-thousandth of a degree of merit into the work of Christ. He has done it all, all all-sufficient, fully-sufficient. In fact, if you try to bring even one iota to the table, you are slapping Christ in the face, and it all becomes null and void for you. It has to all be Christ. All what he's done, nothing of what you bring. What you bring is you bring wrath. You bring guilt. You bring condemnation. And what he does is he absorbs the wrath of God for you. He takes your condemnation. He cleanses you of guilt and gives you peace and grace. It's all of what he does. So with that understanding of biblical interpretation, one of the seven or eight key principles of interpretation of Scripture, let's now just try to find out what Paul is getting at here and how it complements what he says all over in Romans. The word used here, that word translated in the ESV as provided, is a word that, could be restated with this word, since, S-I-N-C-E. If you look at it like that, you can see that it could be read two ways here, even with the word that is given here in the ESV. And it is this. One way, which I'm suggesting is the wrong way, is that, what it looks like on the surface is that there is a condition. There's an inheritance out there, and if you do this thing here, you're going to get there. And what I'm saying to you is that clearly flies in the face of the teaching throughout the New Testament of salvation and justification. But if you put the idea, the concept of sense in, that what this is pointing to is an already fulfilled condition. And already, not a condition that has to be fulfilled in the future. What he is saying here is that this is something that is already true. So let me reread this. Hopefully, this will make sense. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, since we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that radically different idea. You see, the second treatment there, since we suffer with Him, or you could say it like this, in light of the fact that we suffer with Him, we know we're also going to share in His glory. So that He's stating a condition that is already true. He's not bringing into question whether you're going to make it. He's actually doing the opposite. He's saying it's actually the proof that you're in, that suffering in the Christian life is actually the validating reality that you are in fact a son or a daughter of God, that you are in fact adopted of God, that when you suffer for Christ, what you should see is as a road sign on the, on the walk of of discipleship not as uh oh you got off the road no ah i'm suffering is an indication that i'm on the right road i'm suffering is an indication i'm on the right road see that is a as a radically different understanding than what might look like to you on the surface totally different but that's what the greek word is meaning here now let's just do some work at walking around this doctrine here of the suffering of the follower of Christ. And hopefully, I'll give some structure and some flesh and bones to that concept that I just stated. But I want to begin with this. Because we have a real enemy. Do you think that Satan, you think that the devil is involved in your suffering, that he has a goal in mind to accomplish with your suffering? Anybody think that? Oh, no, he does. I promise you he does. In fact, I think you could put it under two categories, and let me just state them. He wants to give you two lives related to suffering if you're a believer. Maybe uh, kind of different nuances to these, but really I think you can put it into two categories, and it's this. Number one, he wants you to buy into the lie that the promises of God are not reliable. For example, oh, you're a child of God. Oh, you're, the, you're one of those that all of these unbelievable promises of God has been made to you. I mean, I'll just stick right here with the text. All that Paul has been saying here in Romans chapter 8 or even specifically about adoption in Romans 8, 14, 15, 16, and the first half of 17. Oh, that's you? So why are you suffering? Why are you suffering? Promises of God are reliable. Can't you see that's all bunk? Can't you see that God is not really involved and powerful and active and caring about you if he's letting you walk through that he doesn't care those promises are not unmovable they're a sham that's one lie here's the other lie oh you're a child you're a son or a daughter of god okay really i mean All those promises that God made in his word and what's happening to you. I think you really should be questioning that reality and the fact of whether or not you really are a son or a daughter of God. Because as I'm looking at the promises and I'm looking at you, I see a wide divergence here. And I think the conclusion is you are not a son or a daughter of God. You see, that's the two lines of deception, either the promises of God or not are not true, or number two, you're not in the promises. Either the promises of God are not true, or you're not in them. So, what Paul does here is that the truth that he is communicating, folks, what defeats a lie? Truth defeats a lie. So what Paul is doing here is he's giving truth that defeats the lie of the enemy related to suffering here. And so we're going to just walk around a few of the truths of the Christian and suffering so we can see what those truths are so that you can defeat the enemy. You can throw it right back in his face. What you're going to find out here is Is the very thing that on the surface might look like gives the enemy fuel, is the very thing that defeats him. So, watch this. First truth. I'm going to give you the truths here under two words, under two main categories. And the first one is this suffering proves, and the second is this suffering prepares. Suffering proves and suffering prepares. So let's talk about how suffering proves. Proves that you are a son or a daughter of God. Just look at the verse again. Second half of 17. We're children and joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, please notice the immediate context here. He has just identified the believer's joint heirship with Jesus, right? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The immediate context is that we are joint heirs with Jesus. So watch how instead of contradicting now, this proves what he's been trying to establish throughout Romans chapter 8. And we can prove that by this. What kind of a life did Jesus have right here? Did Jesus have one of those lives that everything was handed to him on a red carpet? Was he spoon-fed with silver and gold? Did he have the, a life of sunny days and no storms and easy times? No oh, my word. Jesus is the great sufferer. Let me just give you a couple statements from Scripture. He is the man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Jesus Christ is the one who was rejected and the one who was abandoned by his friends and the one who was misunderstood and falsely accused. The one who was hated by the world. (coughs) He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And What does it mean to be united with Christ? It means that we're joint heirs. It means that we get what he gets. It means that his kind of a life is our kind of a life. So just put the connection there. If that's who Jesus was, and you're now a son or a daughter of God, adopted by God and made a joint heir, then your life is going to look like Jesus' life. And that includes his suffering. Do you see how what looked like a contradiction is now becoming an actual validation of the truth that Paul has been hammering at all throughout Romans chapter 8? This isn't saying, look, you have to do this to get there. This is saying, if this is happening to you, it's the proof that you are in fact stepping in the footsteps of Jesus Christ because since you suffer with him, you can know based upon that reality that you're also going to be glorified. It's a road sign. It's a proof. It's a validation that you are in fact a son or a daughter of God because when you suffer for Christ, then the undeniable witness is proclaimed, there's a son, there's a daughter. You see, it's actually proof, not conflict, to the rest of the teaching of Scripture. It just so validates and backs up what Paul has been saying everywhere, and it so perfectly fits with the theme of the eighth chapter of Romans. Now we can understand why Paul, in the midst of a discussion of adoption, would come to the end of that subsection of no condemnation in Romans 8, and he would throw in this idea of suffering. It wasn't to confuse us. It wasn't to disagree with everything that he has said. It was actually to drive one of the strongest nails home, snails of truth, home that says this, if you are suffering for Christ, it is the proof positive that you are in fact a son or a daughter of God. Therefore, it's just an ongoing ev- validation of the truth of Romans 8.1. No condemnation. Not now, not ever. And every time you suffer, Just look at it from the eyes of heaven instead of from the eyes of earth and don't see it as a sign that you've gotten off the path of a son or a daughter. Look at it as a sign that, oh, I must be walking the right path because here's what I know. Jesus walked this path. And if I'm walking it, it must be I'm going the right way because what it means to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ. What it means to be united to Christ means that what happened to him happens to me. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must do what? Anybody state that? Must take up his cross. Jesus was a man of suffering. You're going to have suffering. Jesus said it like this, just flat out promise. I mean, he he promised it. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome. I've overcome. So you see, suffering, instead of contradicting what seems like flies in the face of the promises of God, it is actually confirmational to the son or the daughter so that when the enemy comes to you and says, ah, come on, you're a son or you're a daughter and you're going through suffering while the promises of God are not real, they're not true, they're not guaranteed, or secondly, uh, you must not be a son or a daughter. You can go to the truth. You can throw it right back in his face and say, mm, wrong interpretation, wrong interpretation. Jesus Christ is the example here. Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was the greatest sufferer ever drew breath. My suffering is actually validating that I'm following him. My suffering is actually an indication that I'm in the promises of God because he promised it. I know that I'm his because I'm suffering like he did or some form of that. So don't bring your lies and your doubt here because the truth is it is actually confirming the reality of who I am. So, by the way, thank you for the problems because I'm just getting more Convinced all the time that I'm in and that I'm secure and that it's never going to change and that God's watching over me and God's doing an incredible thing through this. Did He do an incredible thing through Jesus' life? Who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross and what happened because of the cross? Because He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name. You see, Jesus' path to glory was a path of what? Suffering. Your inheritance is one of glory. So your path to glory is going to be one of suffering. It proves it. It doesn't conflict with it. It proves it. Ah, that's awesome. I'm not saying the suffering is awesome. It's not. I don't like it any more than you do. But if we would take the word of God for what it says, we would be able to come right back into the face of the enemy and resist him when he throws his lies at us and say, you're not getting me with that one. In fact, thanks for the reminder. Thanks for further solidifying the fact that I am in fact a son or a daughter and that my glory is coming. You see, that's resisting him. That's resisting him with the truth. And he cannot refute the truth. Just remember when Jesus went to duel with Jesus in the de- when Jesus went to duel with Satan in the desert. And every time Satan came in with the temptation, what was G- Jesus' immediate response? It is written, "Turn these stones into bread." Jesus, take care of yourself here. Don't rely on the Father. Kind of step outside of the perimeters of human power and just exercise your divinity right now and provide for yourself instead of relying upon God to do that for you. And He said it is written. What was he doing? He knew it was a lie. He defeated it with the truth. Jesus, throw yourself down from this temple because the word of God says that he'll send his angels to catch you. And Jesus replied by saying, it is written. You misused that one. Here's the truth. And then another, Jesus, bow down before me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus said, Satan, it is written. Serve the Lord God and worship Him only. You see, Jesus fought deception with truth. We need to fight the deception and lies of the enemy when we're in the midst of suffering. We need to fight those lies with the pervasive truth of the Word of God. And that is, if you're a believer, you're going to suffer. Now, I don't mean that you're going to be put in a concentration camp. I don't mean that you're going to have to give your life. Some of you might. I mean, the world is going in a pretty rough direction. Some of you might, but that's not what I'm saying here. There is some form of suffering in every follower of Christ. In fact, it's said like this. Jesus said it like this. If they hated me, they will what? They're going to hate you also. What is he saying there? He's saying your identification with me makes you hated by the world. So just like I suffered here, you're going to suffer here. Don't take it as an indication that the Father doesn't care. I faced it worse than you did, and the Father cared for me. So here's a good question. Why did Jesus suffer? I mean, I know I've just explained a little bit of that, but just the basic question, why is it that Jesus had to suffer here? Well, obviously he had to suffer to pay the price for our sins. But I want you to think about this for a minute. Try to put this suffering of the believer in context. Jesus suffered because he was the son of God. Just process that for a minute. Jesus suffered because he was the son of God. That means this. He was from another world. Right? This was not his home. He left heaven and came here. He's otherworldly. He is the Holy Son that came to an unholy world. And the prince of the power of the air of this world is Satan. The one that is influencing and governing the kingdoms of this world is the enemy, the evil one, the dark one. And light and darkness do not mix. Satan is not going to roll out the red carpet for the Holy Son down here in his unholy world. That doesn't make sense at all. Of course he's going to suffer. He's from another world. He's not of this world. He's an enemy, or this world is an enemy of his. So there's going to be always the din of battle when he's here. There's always going to be the rattling of sabers when he's here because it's an all-out war. Light and darkness do not mix. And so now let's take that to you and I. That makes perfect sense with Jesus if you just take a minute and think about that. But oh, wow, that's true of us because we've been united to Christ. That means what is true of Christ is true of us. If we're a joint heir with Christ, that means what's true of him is true of us so that no longer are we of this world. You see, when we accepted Christ, we died to this world. We talked extensively about that earlier in Romans. We became a brand new creation. We now have a home in heaven. We're not citizens here anymore. We're of another world. So in the same way that the enemy is not going to roll out the red carpet for us and make the skies blue and the sailing smooth, the reality is there's always going to be the din of battle. There's always going to be the rattling of the saber. It's a battle. He hates you. Satan hates you. He hates you because not only were you originally created in the image of God, but you've been recreated into the likeness of Christ, and Christ came and defeated him. Not only are you created in the image of Christ, but every time he sees you, he knows the reality of who you are. He knows. He throws lies at you, but he knows. He knows. And what he sees is you growing more and more into the likeness of Christ, and his hatred just seethes, and it grows. And so he's out for you. But the reality is that should be a sign to us. Oh, I'm of another world. This world is not my home. There's another indication right there. When People look at you, kind of, look sideways at you or whisper about you. Maybe you don't participate in some of the things they participate in or they condemn you as you holier than thou. And by the way, don't come off like that. No, Don't judge anybody. Just live for the glory of God. But at times, believers are falsely accused and they don't understand us because they are not alive. They're dead. And so there can be these murmurings or these can be false accusations or that's a part of the suffering for being a follower of Christ. And the way we should be evaluating that is by saying, oh, I'm of another world. There's the proof of it right there. There's the proof of it right there. Oh, there's a footstep of Jesus. I'm just stepping in it right now. Footstep of Oh, there is another one. Footstep of suffering. I'm stepping in it right now. Wow. Thank the Lord I'm on the right path. Oh, it's not fun. Paul says, no, no. Discipline is pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. So here's the main point. I'll end this and go to the second one really quick. The point here is that suffering proves who you are. Really, that's what's being said here. Suffering proves the reality of who you are. It doesn't just prove it to you. That's what I've been talking about. But it also proves it to those looking from the outside in, because here's what they know. They know they can't change themselves. They try, but they fail, just like we failed. So the testimony of a believer walking through suffering with their faith intact provides some of the greatest proofs of the fact that we're not of this world, that we're actually Christ. Just go, just go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 proves what I'm talking about here. It is the treatment of those who have faith in God that faced the hard times. It says, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword, They were destitute, afflicted, tormented. They wandered in the deserts and in mountains and in holes of the ground. That was their reality. That was their common experience. But the writer of Hebrews is saying it was showing that this world was not their home. They were looking to another inheritance that was coming. That's what he says in Hebrews 11. They were realizing this is not where they had roots. They were aliens here, sojourners on the earth. They had another reality, and that proved the fact that they were gods. So suffering proves. It proves to the individual, and it proves to those looking in as the power of God is displayed. Here's the second thing. Suffering prepares. And I don't have, I'm actually out of time here. I'm going to take about two or three minutes right here. But just just look at two examples of this truth here. How suffering prepares. Here's how it prepares us. It prepares us by producing in us the character of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Suffering produces in us the character of Christ. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Do you familiar at all with that story? Paul had... He was writing there about his incredibly great revelations, these incredible truths, revelations that God had given to him. He wrote the large portion of our New Testament, the great thinker of the Christian church, the great author of Scripture. And he had these phenomenal revelations of God and the truth and unpacked them. We're still continually studying them in the last 2,000 years, Right? And Paul said, I had a thorn in the flesh that buffeted me. I suffered from it. And I besought God. I prayed to God three times, three seasons, fervently. God, take this from me. And then Paul said, then I got a clue. Then I realized the truth. And here's what he said. I realized that the reason I had that was to keep me humble in the midst of my great revelations that God had given me so that I didn't become lifted up in pride. And what happens when we become lifted up in pride? What happens next? The fall. So Paul said, God was allowing the thorn in the flesh, the suffering, so that I was protected, so that I kept realizing my absolute dependency on God because without it, it would have ruined me. Let me just ask you this question. If all of your problems were taken care of in life, you didn't have any more suffering, any more pain, any more struggles, things just clicked for you every moment of every day, would that produce in you a greater and greater commitment to God, or would it do the opposite? I'm telling you that majority of the time, over time, the spiritual tra- trajectory of your life would go down because suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character. So suffering is a tool of God to prepare us and then look to the greatest example. I say this to you all the time. You want an example for something? Look to Jesus. He will always be the greatest example. He will always be the greatest example. Now try to swallow the concept of this verse. It's hard. It's sour on the tongue. Although Jesus was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Does anybody in here besides me initially have a hard time getting their head around that idea that Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience. So here is what the human mind normally does in that situation. When we read he learned obedience the tendency is immediately to jump, oh, he must have been disobedient, right? If he learned obedience, that must mean that he was disobedient. That is not what the text says. It doesn't say in Hebrews 5 that Jesus was disobedient. It said that he learned obedience from what he suffered. So let me just quickly state this truth and then I'll close because it should encourage you as a sufferer. The fact that Jesus learned obedience through suffering, should be a beautiful, comforting truth to you because here's what it means. Jesus grew. Jesus developed. Jesus fully submitted and subjected himself to the parameters of the human condition so that he had to grow. He had to grow in knowledge. You know what Jesus had to learn to do? The the co-equal, co-eternal, second member of the Trinity. You know what he had to learn to do? He had to learn to take a first step. I mean... The one that could span the heavens in one step throughout eternity had to, on wobbly feet for the first time, let go of mama's hands and take that first step. He had to learn to feed himself. The one who provides food for every creature every day had to learn to feed himself. Jesus had to learn to be potty trained. I mean, let's just get right down to the bare brass tacks. He had to learn to be potty trained. Now, what does that say? Jesus grew. He developed. He became more and more the human, mature man in his development. It says at age 12 that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It says he grew. So here's what that verse in Hebrews says when it says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. It means that the sufferings that Jesus went through, he learned more and more what it means to walk in obedience. Not that he ever walked in disobedience, but every hard time, Every struggle, every trial was an opportunity for him to in deeper and greater ways flesh out and perfect his obedience to the Father. Now take that scenario and apply it to you and I. You and I learn obedience through what we suffer. The fact of the matter is for us a lot of times it's disobedience that needs to become obedience. Not just Obedience that needs perfected into a greater degree. But both of those are true. As God works in our life, he uses suffering both to correct disobedience and to help us walk in obedience, and he uses suffering to make our obedience more and more pure, more and more faithful, more and more perfect. So what obedience, I mean, so what suffering does is it proves who you are, and it prepares you for the inheritance that is coming. With that in view, what I'm hoping that this truth does for you, if you are suffering, is to encourage you in the midst of your struggle to say, okay, thank you, God. Thank you that that suffering is actually an indication of your love for me. And if I know that, and I look at your son, you took your son through it, you're going to take me through it. Because I'm a joint heir of him, and what's true of him is true of me. Would you please stand? We're going to sing a song of closing. Let me just pray, Father. God, I... I know the truth of the matter for me is that blue skies and smooth sailing very rarely ever calls me up. What it does is it produces complacency and apathy. But what calls me up and calls me out is the trial, the challenge, the hard time. So I thank you, God, that you love us enough to be committed to preparing us for the indescribable glory that is to come. And I thank you that our trouble in the moment, I know that they're big and sometimes they loom larger and like they're insurmountable problems in front of us. But the reality of Scripture is that they are so minute and momentary compared to the glory that is coming. So I pray that you would encourage us and help us to keep the right perspective, the perspective that understands that suffering is not an indication that God's promises are false or that we're not in the promises, but in fact, they are the validation, one of the greatest proofs that God's promises are true because it's exactly what Jesus promised. He promised trouble. And they are the validation and proof that we must be a son or a daughter of God because we're following in the footsteps of the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us the strength to be faithful and to keep looking to Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.